In the vast landscape of religious narratives, certain patterns emerge, echoing characters and events across different tales. Much like finding hidden connections in our favorite films, this phenomenon known as typology isn't some spooky hocus pocus way of reading the Bible. Rather, it's a real thing which shines a light on the intriguing connections between figures like Adam and Jonah and Jesus. For the curious mind, these patterns aren't just coincidences. They might actually hint at the realness of these ancient stories. Here we delve into the world of typology, exploring its significance and its potential implications for understanding just how true to life some of these biblical accounts are. Everyone, this is what your pastor didn't tell you. Today I'm on with Swan Sona. We're going to be talking about typology and what it is and the really interesting, sometimes weird hermeneutic that people use in the New Testament when talking about the Old Testament. How are you doing today, Swan? Oh, I'm doing great. It's nice to talk to you, Zach. Yeah, it's, it's fun to, to finally get this going. So people, most people probably aren't familiar with you. I did a response video or two to you on your Eliakim typological argument, but mm -hmm. this will be a similar conversation. Um, so maybe some people are familiar from that with you, but otherwise, can you tell people about your work and just what your, your education, all that kind of stuff you're doing? Sure. So I studied philosophy and political science at Kansas State University, and then I was a member of the Dominican order, which is a Roman Catholic religious order same one that St. Thomas Aquinas was in for a few months. But then I discerned out and realized that, you know, I really know that I'm called to be an academic. And so right now I'm studying the New Testament and early Christianity at Harvard Divinity School. And so a lot of my research interests are in law and authority during the time of Jesus, but also like the history of the early Roman church. So anything related to basically authority and uh, law are my right up my alleyway. And then the last thing is that, you know, a lot of people know me through my YouTube channel and podcast, mm -hmm. Intellectual Catholicism. Uh, on that channel, I have my four-hour defense of my new Eliakim argument. I also have a lot of other content on there uh, with, you know, people who aren't Catholic on all sorts of subjects of intellectual interest. Sweet. Very cool. I, I did not realize that you're going to Harvard. That's, you got to be pretty, uh, I would assume, busy. Right. Um, <laughs> a, lot, a lot of stuff going on there, I'm sure. So, yeah, typology, oh, yeah. what is it? Yeah, so the, the, the one thing to know about typology is that there are, generally speaking, two different kinds of typology, right? So just in general, typology, when, when we talk about like, oh, someone is a type of something else, we're saying that something is like another thing. It's a pattern. It's a model. Um, so if you actually look at what the Greek word is, if you go, for example, to the theological dictionary of the New Testament, uh, it'll talk about how a tupos or a typos, whichever way you spell it, uh, it it's, it's something that when a welder would leave like an impression for where something's supposed to go later. So it, it's like a strike or a blow that leaves an impression of what's to come later. And so basically, uh, typology comes in two varieties. One variety is known as horizontal typology. Horizontal typology concerns historical events or figures or persons, and they have this relationship to each other of one earlier thing being like this later thing and vice versa. Then there's vertical typology, 
And vertical typology appears in, for example, uh, example Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, where it talks about the things in the temple on earth are reflections of the things in the heavenly temple. And so you have then things on earth being like things in heaven. There's a vertical typology and a horizontal typology. Generally speaking, when people talk about typology, they think about the horizontal kind, where you have something earlier in history and something later in history that are both lining up with each other. The key aspect of typology that makes it different from just, you know, you seeing faces in the clouds is that typology is divinely intended. It's a statement about divine providence. Uh, so, you know, for example, Craig L. Blomberg in his handbook to New Testament exegesis, he talks about how in the ancient Mediterranean world and even in Greek texts, the, the idea of typology was that when you would have these earlier things correspond to these later things and vice versa, it was a way of showing the authority of God or the gods over history to show that there is a divine hand over things. Mm. And I mean, there are all kinds of like theological reasons why God would arrange history in such a way where something earlier would correspond to something later. So, I mean, one example is basically, or one reason I should say is God might make two things correspond so that you see the later thing is in continuity with the earlier thing. Or even it's a way to validate the later thing by showing it's the successor of the earlier thing. So uh, if I had to give you just an easy definition, like the simple definition is when God makes one thing like another thing for some theologically significant reason. So they're not going to exactly be the same carbon copies of each other, but when one thing is like another thing, well, when God makes one thing like another thing for a significant reason. Uh, the last thing I'll say, or maybe two last things is, if you want like a really technical definition, I, I gave one in my Eliakim, long Eliakim presentation. And I said, typology is the divinely authored historical correspondence between an earlier prefigured type and later fulfilling antitype such that God's providence is made evident to his people. Uh, so that, that's, that's typology. Uh, now, there's something worth saying about what makes typology different from allegory. So if you look at some of like the early church fathers, they'll kind of use allegory and typology interchangeably. Uh, but then as time went on, especially among exegetes uh, who were concerned about, okay, well, you know, we want to be careful about using our terms properly because they started noticing that there is this thing, broadly speaking, that we know as typology that is distinct from allegory. So to give you an example of what today, you know, the classification would say is like an allegorical interpretation. Uh, in the Epistle of Barnabas, an early Christian text, it tries to make sense of the Mosaic law. And Barnabas says in this text, oh, well, you know, like when Moses said, don't eat pigs, he was talking about don't be around guys who are like pigs in their moral character. And basically what the allegorical interpretation does is it views things as symbols to the point of losing their original historical context. Hmm. Whereas the whole point of typology is the history. The whole point of typology is to say, no, God is actually intentionally doing something in history where one thing is actually like another thing. So that's why today, like a lot of scholars are going to say typology is an allegory, although they have historically been used interchangeably. I, I think personally, it, it's good to be specific about why these two are different things, because I think typology is really meant to convey something real about the providence of God. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, 
you know, you said a lot there, uh, but it begs the question, like, why, why should people care about this? Well, I think why anybody should care about it is, um, you know, Leonard Goppelt, who wrote a famous book called A Typos, you know, basically one of the, you know, one of like the most important texts in terms of like understanding typological exegesis and typology was he basically said, this is the apostolic hermeneutic. Hmm. So if you want to look at how did the apostles interpret the Old Testament, they interpreted it typologically. Now you might say, well, no, Swan, they interpreted prophetically. Well, yes. So part of the prophecy was also the typology or part of the typology was also the prophecy. Like they are both intertwined with each other. The whole point was that the things that were there in the Old Testament were foreshadowing and prefiguring Christ or the events of the New Testament that were to come. Mm. And so the whole point then is that the way in which the apostles validated the church and validated the claims of Christ was through typology. So even Craig L. Blomberg and um, his co-authors in their textbook on the New Testament and biblical interpretation, they talk about how this was the like hermeneutic that they used in order to show basically to their Jewish brothers and sisters, we are in continuity with the Torah, with the Tanakh. We aren't departing from it, but we are in continuity. And so typology was that principle by which they showed their continuity. Hmm. And also, I should say, the uh, further fulfillment of uh, Christ building upon the prophets, uh, or but rather fulfilling them and magnifying the fullness of what was originally intended. Hmm. Yeah, so... So not only would you say that when they're using typology, they're using they're making specific claims about, you know, whether the historicity or the, you know, things that really happened. Additionally, they're making theological points. Additionally, right. um, you know, even if we're supposed to understand any of this, we have to understand what typology is and and how what they're trying to do with it when they're using it. So that's why it's important. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So you did mention a couple terms there, anti-type and uh, I, I didn't hear prototype, um, but uh, the different types yeah, and so, all that. What are, could mm -hmm. you explain that to us? Yeah, I mean, so like some people will use the term type, which just refers to the thing that is earlier than the anti-type, mm -hmm. right? So the anti-type is the later thing. Uh, you could call the type the prototype, archetype, right? I mean, there are different ways that you can describe it, but the whole point is that basically the thing that is the original hmm. uh, is going to be called the type, the archetype, or the prototype. And then the thing that is in contrast or correspondence with the earlier thing is known as the anti-type. Hmm. Okay. So a lot of the people that are listening to this are familiar with John Walton's work, where he argues that Adam is an archetype, hmm. like it's he is representative of all humanity. Is that how you're using the word right. archetype here? Or... Um, because it seems like archetype and the way you just use it is just like someone that was before that. I don't know. Maybe you can help clarify there. Yeah. Cause like usually an archetype is a kind of, um, I guess kind of like this image, you know, that, uh, is representative of a group. Okay. I think the way I'm using archetype though, is more in the sense of it was, this is like the, the earlier form or version of something, mm -hmm. right. It's, it's the, the original image that is building, that, it, that the later image is building upon, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so I'm not using archetype in quite the same way as Walton. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm using it more, I mean, because some people will call the type the archetype, mm -hmm. the thing that is the original model for which the later thing is modeled after. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. He also, uh, I know that his son at least uses archetype to explain like things that Eve did. So it's not representative of everything um, and the way you use it. But mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I need to look into that a little bit more. more. So, I mean, that, that's mm -hmm. why like it's best to maybe stick with just calling it a type or a prototype mm -hmm. to not get it mixed up with archetypes. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So, um, what would you say are the most, you know, obvious examples of typology here? Yeah, I mean, so there are a lot of examples throughout the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. So if I just had to, let's say, restrict myself to the to the New Testament corresponding to the Old Testament, mm -hmm. uh, one of the most obvious is like Romans chapter 5, verse 14, where it says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the violation committed by Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Mm -hmm. And so literally it uses the Greek word, you know, typos there or tupos there. And uh, I mean, that, that's the most clear example of typology because it literally kind of uses the word, mm -hmm. right? Where Adam is kind of the impression, the original form that is pointing towards the one who was to come, mm -hmm. which is Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Another example I really like is Acts chapter 3, verse 22, um, when Peter is preaching. And uh, Peter references back uh, the book of Deuteronomy and you know, Peter quoting Moses says, quote, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your countrymen. To him, you shall listen regarding everything he says to you. The important thing here is that Moses says that the, there will be a prophet like me coming from among you. So there, there's going to be a likeness that this later prophet has to me. He's going to be in a way similar to who I am. And then you see very clearly in, for example, the Gospel of Matthew, Left and right, like Matthew is playing upon this mosaic, uh, uh, this Moses typology, mm -hmm. right? I mean, so you have the Holy Family escaping to Egypt, and then uh, because there's this king who wants to, uh, you know, kill uh, this one child, but he ends up killing a lot of innocents along the way, a lot of other innocent children. So there's like a similarity there with Herod and uh, Pharaoh. And then you go on with uh, kind of building up to the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus delivers his law, his vision of human flourishing just as Moses went up on a mountain and received the law, right? And gave God's vision in the, in the Hebrew Bible for, you know, human flourishing. And so, I mean, there's then an example of like a Jesus Moses typology, and then you see it being validated there in Acts 3.22. So that's what we would totally expect given that Peter is drawing this parallel. Last thing I'll point out is Matthew 12.40, where Jesus says, for just as Jonah was in the stomach of the sea monster for three days and three nights, so the son of man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Mm -hmm. So what happened to jo Jonah basically, or something of what happened to Jonah is going to happen to me, right? So there's a, there's a pattern there. There's a repetition that's quite interesting, a correspondence. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. So uh, maybe we can talk about a couple of those. So uh, one that had always plagued me for a long time was the, the Matthew 2.15 reference where Matthew says, He's talking about Jesus, he says, where he stayed in Egypt until the death of Herod, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said about the said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son, and that's a reference to Hosea yeah. eleven one, but Hosea eleven one is talking about Israel living leaving Egypt. It has nothing to do with some yeah. future prophetic vision. Maybe, maybe you, you could, you disagree, but I mean, it has nothing, you know, contextually speaking, it has nothing to do with a, a future prophet right. that's supposed to come or, you know, save everyone. 
like it's literally talking about Israel, but it, Matthew is maybe you can clarify, but Matthew's reading it typologically. He's seeing Jesus or he's seeing um, Israel or I guess Jesus standing for all of Israel and how Jesus right. left Egypt. Is, is that how you understand it? Yeah. Okay. So this is an interesting, uh, this is an interesting problem or question uh, because what happens when the New Testament claims that some prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus, but the Old Testament doesn't seem to be setting up a prophecy, mm. right? Um, so there's a lot that I can say here, but on the specific question of like Hosea 11, right? I think my professor made a really excellent point. So one of my professors at Harvard, he talked about how basically he used this analogy. Mm. Suppose you're watching a TV show and at the like grand finale of the show, you learn like some some crazy bombshell that makes you look at everything prior to that episode differently. Mm. So I mean, like, for example, the good place uh, is one example where they, you know, they thought they were in heaven, but they're really in hell. And then they start showing flashbacks of things that happened before, and they're suddenly cast in a whole new light. Mm. And my professor was saying for Matthew, that's what happened when Jesus, you know, died and resurrected from the dead it changed the way that he viewed history and the scriptures. And so a whole new layer of meaning was like unlocked for him. And so I suppose then um, you could go down the route of saying that Matthew in the second chapter is engaging in a kind of typology between Israel and Jesus. That's one possibility. Uh, because the events of Israel, I mean, in some way d did prefigure what was to come with Christ, mm -hmm. obviously Christ representing Israel. Or you could say simply that like Matthew, uh, given divine inspiration and the impact that Jesus had on his life through his ministry and resurrection, when Matthew went back to the scriptures, he read that passage in Hosea 11 and he immediately thought about the life of Jesus. And so it just kind of struck him as, no, this is about Jesus. Uh, it was almost like he got a new layer of scripture uh, which means then that it wouldn't have been part of the original knowledge of the author of Hosea, that like he wasn't writing it, obviously, mm -hmm. perhaps to say like, oh yeah, this is going to be about the Messiah. But for Matthew, in light of what he experienced with Jesus, he looked at that kind of mundane passage and saw a whole new layer of meaning. And then we would just simply say that that was a divinely intended layer of meaning. And mm -hmm. so sometimes this is called a census plenior. Yeah. When there's a deeper meaning to the text that is uncovered when a deeper level of scripture is discovered beyond just kind of the immediate historical meaning uh so for example hosea might not have originally intended for the 11th chapter to have been a prophecy about the messiah but then matthew going back under divine inspiration reading through the scriptures of the of the hebrew bible saw another layer of meaning he was when he read that he he couldn't help but think about jesus he couldn't help but see jesus in that mm. and so it's not illegitimate for him to have made that move because one it was under divine inspiration and then by through that divine inspiration it would be guaranteed then that there was this other level to the scripture another layer of meaning obviously because scripture has the human author and the divine author and so the human author in his historical context might not have been knowing that he was giving a prophecy but then the divine author, through this later, you know, apostle, through this later exegete, reveals that layer of meaning in light of the Jesus event. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Um, 
the, the another fun one that people are probably familiar with are, is Romans five fourteen. Um, so right. you know, you know, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the violation committed by Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So you, mm-hmm. by this, would be thinking that Paul is specifically making a claim here that that Adam was a historical person, right? Just because of the way typology. Oh, works. so this is fun. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and uh, Zach, you're asking the, uh, the the difficult questions. So it's fun because um, there are people who will disagree with me on this. Okay, uh, but in my opinion, given the way that typology worked in the ancient world, uh, when you tried to say that one thing was like another thing, and you were claiming or making a claim about divine providence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you could you could have. One example that I've heard is, well, you know, Adam doesn't necessarily have to be historical because you could still have typology. So, for example, if I say that this detective is so good, he's like Sherlock Holmes, mm-hmm. right? He's kind of this uh, anti-type of Sherlock Holmes. I could say, yeah, sure, like that's a kind of typology. You're noting a likeness between them, and it brings out a certain level of meaning because you're saying that detective is a really good detective. He's like Sherlock Holmes. But in terms of like how it works in the biblical mindset in the ancient world, when you have a typology, it is a claim about divine providence. It is a claim about what God has actually done in history. Hmm. And so for me, at least I would say that this favors, in my opinion, and uh, I know I've gotten some uh, some flack for this, but I think it favors, in my opinion, a historical Adam, uh, because of the fact that the way that typology works is that it is rooted and grounded in history. It is a claim about what God has tangibly done and how he has, through his sovereignty and providence, arranged history. Hmm. That's really interesting. Uh, so what, what flack are you getting? <laughs> well, I mean, some people will say, well, that doesn't necessarily follow, right? Yeah. Because you could still, I mean, once again, you could still kind of have, I guess, typology between a fictional type, but a real anti-type. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one possibility, and sure. Um, but at that point, then, I think that we would be talking about allegory right? Where you have a a thing that's a symbol that's kind of fictional or not real. So think about like Animal Farm by George Orwell, you know, all those pigs in the story and uh, farm animals are representations of uh, the communists and and all that and the uh, kind of politics of Russia. Mm. But, you know, those allegorical images were kind of fictitious. They were just meant to illustrate a point. Uh, You know, you weren't supposed to take that story literally. Uh, but but to me, like when Paul uses the language of type, and then when we know how typology worked in the ancient world and how they viewed it, I mean, they, they treat it as a historical phenomenon, hmm. as something really happening in this space-time continuum. Didn't you say that, at least later on, a lot of the early church fathers were, were kind of blending metaphor or, you know, figure of language and, what no, allegory, allegory and typology? Like they were almost interchangeable, so is is it possible that that's what's happening here, and that Paul's using mm-hmm. the word type, but he's really referring to allegory? Um, right. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm just asking you what you think about that, if that's possible. Yeah. So I think um, what what later scholars have tried to do is they've tried to see, you know, let's say that you see a term that's being used, and it kind of it's a, it's a blanket term that's used to describe like two discernible separate phenomena. Mm. 
and you start realizing this one term is actually in a very imprecise and kind of unhelpful way putting two distinct phenomena under one word. What scholars then started doing is they started saying, well, let's start kind of distinguishing what's going on here and noting um, uh, why our terms should be different. So we will refer in one way allegory to this distinct category of things and then typology to this other distinct category of things. And I would say the, um, I think the whole mindset there was that it, it you know, because in one light that could sound like anachronistic, like we're forcing a category back that was not recognized. But I think that when you do have two distinct phenomena that need to be separated, um, then I think that make be, that becomes a valid move. And so then you could ask, is Paul engaging in typology or allegory here? Um, I mean, I think he'd be engaging in typology because, well, <laughs> then this gets into like, other theological assumptions. But I think the fact that, you know, Paul is making a claim by going back to Israel's history and using tangible events to prove what he's saying. Like, for example, like if, if what Paul is saying about Abraham in Romans chapter four didn't actually happen, then Paul's argument from like a precedent in Abraham for justification by faith doesn't work, right? Because it's just a fictitious event. And so I'm just saying that in continuity then, Paul seems to be really driving home that the real history of the Hebrew Bible, the real history of the past, does actually point to the real mm. present fulfillment of Christ uh, in the new age, in the new covenant. Mm. Yeah, interesting. All right, so um, the the other thing worth mentioning in this passage is that, you know, the way Paul is using Jesus and Adam is actually similar, but very different because, you know, Adam is mm -hmm. supposed to be yes. this, at least a symbolic gesture of death. Like, you know, either whether, you know, he, death and sin came from Adam specifically or however you interpret that, whatever it is, Paul is certainly using Adam to signify death. And then he's using Jesus to signify life, at least. And whether mm -hmm. death is mm -hmm. whatever death is, isn't, you know, you can debate about that or whatever, but um so those are obviously contrasting so typology there is something similar um maybe you can point out right. what's similar but but there's very something different can you um flesh those out a little bit what what is specifically similar and what is different yeah and this is another important thing too so um as you pointed out like here we have a typology between adam and christ but it's christ being the antithesis of adam right so you know where like you know paul talks about how the first man uh, was from the earth. The second man was from heaven, mm. right? Um, both of them are are representations, if you will, or um, let's say representations of mankind or what mankind could be in a way. Mm. Um, like, for example, Christ represents what is, I mean, he's the prototype of the resurrection of the new creation and the world to come. Uh, and from him comes this new life. Whereas from Adam comes also this new life that wasn't there before in the garden, which is death and finitude. Whereas in the garden, you know, we had life. And so like both Adam and Christ are these kind of, what's similar about them is that they are these pivotal actors and representations of, and I don't want to use representation in the way of like, um, you know, kind of just symbols. I mean, repre like representatives, let's say. 
-hmm. what happens to them shapes what happens to us. Just as if you have like a a representative in in the house or, or yeah, who represents you, what they do affects you back home in in wherever state you are in. Mm -hmm. And so similarly, like Christ and Adam are these representatives. And, but then what's going on here is that, uh, that Paul is pointing out that Paul, excuse me, that, that Adam and Christ are different in significant ways and that their representative roles led to different consequences. So Adam brought death, Christ brings life. Mm-hmm. But what's uniting them is that they are both these like pivotal, pivotal representatives of the human race, and their actions had these really drastic radical consequences mm-hmm. for the world as we know it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so- but yeah, some, yes, typology mm-hmm. does happen through contrast, and that's important too. The similarities and the differences matter in typology. Interesting. So the the other interesting point is that a lot of time in typology, it seems like the the writers are just noticing these patterns, you know, of things that happen in history. And they're like, okay, some typology is going on or something like that. But this is, I, well, do you think this is like divinely like orchestrated, like God set it up? Like Paul is thinking in this way, he's thinking God set it up that there was going to be a man that brought death, and then there was a man that brought life. Like that is another point mm-hmm. that he's making here as regards to orchestration throughout history. Yeah, I mean it's a point about divine sovereignty that uh, God one that God wasn't let's say surprised by what Adam did. Right, but that God knew ahead of time that this was going to happen, and so He set up this pattern, this uh, correspondence to occur, or even this antithesis mm-hmm. to occur, uh, so that we could see His hand and His sovereignty over history. Mm-hmm. And so it's not like, for example, Adam was there, and then God kind of had to clean up the pieces or whatever. The whole mm-hmm. point was that when you have Christ later coming onto the scene and contrasting with Adam, then you see the hand of God over history, and you see that he does have a plan. Hmm. And uh, I mean, I mean, there are other things too that come out in this typology. Like, for example, you know, I mean, you could get into issues of justification and, and that sort of thing. But like, there's a lot of theological significance in this typology. Hmm. Uh, doctrine could possibly uh, be affected evidentially by typology, hmm. Hmm. if you interpret it well. Mm-hmm. You're not referring to your Alakim argument, are you? Well, I mean, I'm not referring to just my Eliakim argument, but I mean, I think this is a general point, you know, that, um, you know, some people will say that typology can't be used to like demonstrate or falsify doctrine. Mm-hmm. And to me, that just, that's just ridiculous, because if this is the chief apostolic hermeneutic mm-hmm. of how they connected the Old Testament to the New Testament, uh, then we need to get into the mindset of the biblical authors insofar as we can. And so, like, if we have something in the text where there's this typology, and let's say the typology doesn't make sense if one interpret, like, let's say that we're debating someone on in the interpretation of some passage and they have this doctrine, but that doctrine just doesn't make sense with some typology that is clearly in scripture, or at least just has a high degree of probability of being there in scripture, mm-hmm. then that would give us reasons to be suspicious of that doctrine. Yeah. 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 I, that's, I do think that is a weird claim that that typology can't give you some type of doctrine. I think it's a a claim of like, oh, you know, typology is difficult to understand and therefore you can't be probable about it and therefore you shouldn't make it your doctrine. But 
to, to, to specifically say, hey, you can't make doctrine out of any typology at all. It's just got, that doesn't really make much sense. It seems very arbitrary. Rather, it, it should be mm -hmm. what you what you said, like, you know, if it's if there is a high probability of it, well, then why wouldn't you? Why why wouldn't you be able to say that that's you know that probably should influence your your doctrine? Any any thoughts to add there? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I think that when you are able to actually start interpreting typology, it shows a maturity in your exegesis. Because I think some people, when they say like, "Oh, I don't want to," you know, interpret typology for my doctrine because that's too dangerous or that's too confusing or it's too spurious or whatever. What they want then, what they're saying they want then are like these nice, clear passages in scripture where things are neatly laid out. And it's like, well, if any, like any theology student knows that you need to kind of pull up your exegetical sleeves and do the hard work and piece things together. Sure. Uh, and so typology would just be, you know, I mean, obviously there, are, you want to be careful about interpreting typology. So you want to point out, okay, what exactly is the thing in common or the thing being contrasted? But I, um, and there's a lot I can say there, but you want to point out what is the thing in common? What's the thing being contrasted and brought together? And then why? And then when you answer that why question, you need to like know well the Gospel of Matthew. You need to know well the Book of Romans. You need to know the scriptures well so that then you can see the internal harmony and unity there. And then you can start understanding, okay, why are these two things being brought together? What's the theologically significant point here? Uh, one other thing I'll just say really quick too is sure. somebody might say, well, Swan, you, you emphasize this whole thing about typological correspondence, right? But then, you know, Zach, you brought up the example of how Christ and Adam didn't correspond in a way, but contrasted each other, right? Because, you know, Christ was the one who brought life. Adam was the one who brought death. But I, I think still, like, correspondences are going to—there are gonna, uh, there are still correspondences that connect Adam and Christ to each other, right? And so that's why you could even compare the two in the first place. That's why the differences actually matter, right? It's not like I'm comparing the difference between an apple and an orange, those are just two separate things that have no connection. But the correspondences put those two things in contact with each other so that you start paying attention to the differences, if that makes sense. And so as I said in my definition of typology, there's this aspect of fulfillment in the New Testament where, or even, I mean, we can even talk about the Old Testament too, where the thing that comes later kind of exceeds and fills up and goes further than what the first type had done before. And so I think the correspondence is still there between Adam and Christ because they are like these men who are representatives of the human race. But then what happens is uh, those correspondences make us pay attention to the differences and those differences are part of the fulfillment hermeneutic of the New Testament. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, on why I went down that little tangent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, so next question here. Uh, um, I'm really interested in like understanding when the writers of the new testament or old or whenever whenever this came this idea of typology came about like when when, it, when did it start being used um so could you talk about i don't know from what in your research i don't know examples of typology before the new testament if there is any oh yeah i mean one clear example i think is in the book of joshua chapter 3 verses 16 to 17. so basically uh, Joshua is installed as the successor of Moses. Moses dies. Mm -hmm. And uh, we all remember that Moses parted the waters. And then you have this episode where Joshua is moving into Jericho, into the promised land. 
and he also moves the Jordan River. The waters part in a way, and they are, the Israelites are able to walk on dry land. And so this would be an instance then where obviously Joshua's calling upon what Moses had done. The book of Joshua is calling upon what Moses had done, and it's showing you through that correspondence that Joshua is the successor of Moses. Joshua has been given that mosaic power. And so he can do things that Moses, like Moses had done. And so, I mean, that's a very clear instance then. And I think this is important because some people think typology only happens between the Old and the New Testament. Typology can happen within a testament. And so this is just one example. Hmm. Uh, another example is between Moses and Jeremiah. So, I mean, people have listed these out. Uh, Timothy Rucker, who I've mentioned before uh, on you know the Eliakim debate, you know, great, great New Testament scholar, uh, Baptist pastor, if I'm associate pastor, um, you know, Timothy Rucker talks about how Jeremiah and Moses are types of each other because, you know, Jeremiah and Moses, um, they have the, well, one example is that like Moses and Jeremiah both like struggle with speaking and then God has to like, you know, motivate them and get them prepared. Uh, Moses and Jeremiah are described as like having the words of the Lord in their mouth right? Their word, the word of the Lord is given to them. And so you do have these instances then where, you know, Moses and Jeremiah do seem to be types of each other, hmm. and consciously so. And I think this is the, the key thing about when do you know a typology is valid versus when it's invalid? Is the text actually making a concentrated effort, a discernible effort to put these two things in mind? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, one easy way to detect typology is if the text actually like does some type of verbal correspondence. And, you know, we, you know about this because uh, you had a uh, Ryan Warner, very, very bright guy come on your channel, critique my work. Uh, and, uh, you know, I love Ryan. I disagree with him on this, but what, what he pointed out was like verbal correspondence is a very important standard for discerning a textual illusion. And he's absolutely right. And so if you have like a verbal correspondence between one text and another, that author is taking a concentrated effort to say, look back at the reference, look back at what I'm talking about, right? Um, or even the structure of a story can just so closely mirror something that mm -hmm. came before, such that, you know, you kind of have to be an idiot not to see it. So the story of like, you know, the infancy narrative in Matthew's gospel, and the story of Moses's kind of upbringing. Mm -hmm. I mean, th those are structured intentionally to evoke each other to make you think about one and or the New Testament is structured in that way so that you think about the Old Testament event. So, I mean, those are just some examples then of we want to be able to discern, is the author taking a concentrated effort to make you think about the type with mm -hmm. the anti-type? Yeah. Yeah. It's something I do really enjoy about your work is not only how philosophically rich it is in regards to syllogisms and all that, you know, making things extremely clear, but also uh, the, the, the standards you reference, like like, you know, scholarship today is, you know, put all their minds together and thought of like, all right, these are some really good rules we can use to help us understand when we're seeing typology and when, you know, our minds are just tricking us or whatever. So, you know, the examples you mentioned, like, you know, if a word is the same, if you have like 17 words that only occur in these two instances and they just happen to be extremely parallel events, like, yeah, like, sure, that's got to be, <laughs> that can't be a coincidence. Something's mm -hmm. going on there, right? Uh, so, um, yeah, uh, yeah. Question for you. So, you know, you you mentioned this before, but 
there there are some instances instances where you say that you know the old testament writers probably didn't know that there was anything typologically going on uh, but would you mm -hmm. say that there are some instances where they did or they and were you just like prophecy or or what do you what are you thinking there mm. yeah i mean so um I mean, there are different strategies that you can take. So one strategy that I've seen some people take is to just deny that the original authors didn't know about the later uh, prophet, uh, the later fulfillment of what they were saying. So um, you know, some people will say things like, "Oh yeah, Moses knew about the Trinity. Uh, Moses knew about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus." Like they they would go that far, right? And, and maybe that's one way, right, to kind of avoid uh, to deal with the problem. Uh, you just say that. Uh, these prophets had this secret knowledge the whole time, maybe. Uh, another possibility, like I mentioned before, is the census plenier interpretation, mm -hmm. where you say that they they said, the human author said one thing, but then the divine author, God, saw or you, retained those words and had another layer of richness to them that was like waiting to be unlocked once the Jesus event happened, right? Which is, I think, uh, a pretty reasonable stance. But at the same time, though, you don't want to just kind of do a general, uh, a hasty generalization here, uh, because there are instances where scripture does seem to say, oh, no, in this instance, when David wrote this psalm, he knew about Jesus. So uh, just like one really famous example is actually Acts chapter 2, verses 25 to 36. And I'll just pull that up really quick because I think it's worth kind of quoting in full. Cool. So, you know, uh, Peter is speaking uh, and he says, for David says of him, I saw the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. And he just kind of quotes that Psalm. And then uh, Peter says, brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. So because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, it says in verse 31, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ that was neither who was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay, right? And so, I mean, that seems to suggest if you're saying that David looked ahead, okay, like maybe that's metaphorical language. Maybe that's just really colorful language. But I mean, he just said he's a prophet. And that he received this prophecy that one of his descendants would be coming. And then, you know, he, he writes um, this psalm, uh, and then it says he looked ahead. I mean, so that to me suggests that at least David had a hunch of what was to come. Maybe David had a glimmer of what was to come, right, in some capacity. And so he writes these psalms in anticipation for when, you know, I mean, it's it's interesting when you look at the Gospels, uh, Jesus loves citing the psalm where it says, the Lord said to my Lord, you know, sit at my right hand and let my enemies be under your feet. And it's funny because Jesus in Matthew and Mark, both times he says, how, you know, he asked the people to interpret the passage. Like, how can David talk about the Messiah as Lord, right? The Lord, the King said to, or the Lord God said to my Lord, and then that was assumed to be like the Messiah or the son of David. And David was writing this. The question was like, this passage doesn't make sense, right? And so Jesus is saying there, yeah, it doesn't make sense unless you understand who I am. And so it's kind of saying, well, then if David is writing something that doesn't make sense in his original historical context, and it's waiting for the later Jesus event to happen, then David must have known something. He must have had an inside on what was to come. And so he writes this thing that originally is cryptic and doesn't make sense, but he knew 
it's because he knew that later his son, Jesus Christ, would fulfill it. Well, if you want to say that it was cryptic, I mean, why why think that David knew it all? Why not say that, you mm-hmm. know, this is, you know, God just said, hey, you know, write this down. It's cryptic now, but it'll make sense later. You don't, you don't it's, like, surely you think that's a possibility, but you don't think it's likely. I mean, yeah, I mean, so I, it depends on, well, it depends on what your view of like the writing of scripture was like, you know, like, was it divine dictation? Did God say, Hey, you're, you you know, you have to write this down or, I mean, you know, and write these words down exactly almost like as if David was possessed or maybe like David was moved by the spirit and retaining his personality and his own kind of historical perspective wrote down these Psalms. But then, I mean, as I'm talking about with this argument from Acts chapter two, especially mm-hmm. verses 31 mm-hmm. uh, to, um, you know, to the rest of the passage to verse 36, I mean, it says that he looked ahead. I mean, so he got a peek somehow, some way. Um, and I, I don't know what that means exactly, but it seems <laughs> right. to me that, you know, David kind of knew something about what was to come. Yeah. And so he writes this passage that originally is seemingly cryptic. And then it finally makes sense once the Jesus piece connects it all together. Yeah, that, that, that is really interesting. Okay. So the the next question is, you know, maybe it kind of has to do with the significance of this because, you know, a lot of people say, I guess, I guess it's mostly the people that say like, oh, we got to read the scripture Bible literally. And, you know, there's, mm-hmm. unless if it's completely obvious, then it should be read literally, no metaphors and all that kind of stuff. Um, so they almost they like want to say that hey if we read it liter if we don't read it literally then we're gonna our ourselves are going to want to read our own passages you know typologically in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament when they're not supposed to be that way. Um, so I guess that's like mm. seventeen questions in one. But um, <laughs> anyway, so what do you, I mean? What do you think about how? we should look at typology in regards to the old testament like is it okay if we engage in this typological reading or i mean because we don't have you know inspiration of the spirit or whatever even though you know some Mm -hmm. might say we have the holy spirit so maybe that's that is one reason to think so or like what do you think about all that yeah i mean so it's interesting because i think the only way that you could encounter or deal with a skeptic who doesn't want you to engage or who, who doesn't think we can really reasonably engage in typological exegesis now is to just provide an example of where the text doesn't explicitly say, here's a typology between this figure and that figure, but the structure or the content or the narrative flow of the story is so obvious that you can't help but see it or notice it, right? Hmm. And so you kind of have to put your head in the sand to deny that there is a typology here. Um, I mean, I think it was Jonathan Edwards, you know, great, uh, great Puritan preacher who said, yeah, we can identify types um, in, in, the New, in the New Testament and the Old Testament, even if they're not, let's say, explicitly stated, because this is the way in which the Bible was written. This is how the threads were connected. And so I think the, the biblical authors were expecting their readers to kind of know their scripture and to kind of know the world of the Bible, the cosmology, the history, the providence of God, so that they would see the connections. And so it's actually, I mean, typology is an invitation for you to enter into a deeper level with the text 
and to start thinking like the text and seeing connections within the divine unity of scripture. And so it'd be kind of tragic if we couldn't go beyond just what was explicitly, uh, you know, kind of uh, just so obviously there. I think instead what we can do is as mature exegetes, I mean, obviously have controls, right? Not just go off the rails, don't have typology run amok, right? And so I've talked about before, you know, some controls that you can install. Like, for example, you know, we have standards for finding a textual illusion. Apply those standards as rigorously as you can and see, uh, is the text making a concentrated effort to bring one thing into mind with another thing? Um, you know, structure, the structure and narrative flow of a story, right? Uh, those arguments can be a little, a little shaky at times. So you want to kind of be careful with those and see, I mean, does the New Testament elsewhere, let's say, explicitly validate the typology? So for example, with Acts chapter 3, verse 22, Peter says Jesus is the new Moses, basically. And then you can look at Matthew and see, oh, the structure of the opening of Matthew is so similar to like the early life of Moses, that because we have this verification from Acts, we can safely then interpret this thing typologically between Jesus and Moses. Or even when they talk about the prophet, right? This is the prophet who was spoken of. What prophet? Well, well then we can know if we have the Jesus-Moses typology established in Acts 3.22, that we can then read maybe that when the Israelites are saying, or the, the Jewish people are saying, is this the prophet who was spoken of? Or, well, they're talking about Deuteronomy 18.15, the prophet like Moses. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. It that When you say it like that, it's, it's much more simple. So if like if we are using these um you know textual cues which you know even the writer many times the writers just obviously implying that there's a something typological going on here then we can mm. you know why would we ever have an issue with saying hey you know that's probably what's going on i mean that at that point it's just the basic you know trying to understand what the writer is attempting to say in a text um right so i guess the the fear for a lot of people is that we look at a text and we see some similarities like oh there's water in this passage and there's water in this passage therefore it must be similar um yeah but but i mean mm -hmm. at that point like you know you're you're not you know uh analyzing the text very well you're just making you know vague similarities as if there's a textual significance there I think the writer was actually trying to imply it when, you know, there's like, it's possible, but the, if it's not, um, if you don't have a good reason to think so, then you, you're just basically just guessing at that point. Um, so in that right, in that way, like, you know, reading the text, like any other, you know, writing, you know, to, to understand what the original writer is trying to think that's, it's, it's not a, like mystical thing of like oh we're using typology or something like it's just it's just reading the text yeah I, I like the way you put that so um did you say something mm. you want to say something yeah well i mean just another thing i want to point out too is i, I forget which like commentary it is I, I i kind of beat myself up because i need to find this quote because it's so good but basically the source that i had it said that like typology so there's a difference between typological exegesis and what I'm gonna call biblical typology. So typological exegesis is when you as the exegete, you as the reader go into the text, and uh, this is kind of known as the spiritual sense of scripture, where you're just trying to like see these connections and they kind of help solidify your faith and they're very meaningful. So to give you one example, 
uh, when Mary Magdalene is in the gar uh, is you know near the um, near the tomb of the empty tomb of Jesus and she's weeping. Some people will say, "Oh, well, that's like Eve, like weeping in the garden, and then she's waiting for Adam to come, and then Jesus appears, and he's the new Adam, right?" And so, and it's like, okay, well, you know, that's beautiful on a spiritual level. Like, if you spiritually see that connection and it speaks to you, more power to you, right? But then to say that that's what the text is actually trying to evoke or do, um, that seems a bit of a stretch, right? And so, biblical typology is when you're saying the text is actually making a concentrated effort. For you as the audience to see um you know a connection here hmm. right that would be biblical typology the typology that is like in the text itself that is there and meant to be discerned by the reader like the author hmm. wants you to see it whereas on the other hand um or the author intends for you to see it maybe the author wants you to see typologies that aren't explicitly there um for spiritual nourishment right but anyway there's biblical typology that which is intended by the author to be seen in the text and a concentrated mm. effort is made for you to see it. Whereas, um, and by, by concentrated, I don't necessarily mean like explicit attestation, but at least there is an effort and you can discern that effort yeah. from the author's part. Mm -hmm. Then you have typological exegesis where you're going in with a typology glasses and you're trying to see all these connections and you find spiritual fruit from it, which is beautiful and good, but um, doesn't honor or, or it doesn't fully capture maybe what the author originally had in mind. Oh, okay. Well, tell me about this then. What do you mean by beautiful and good? Because if you're misreading the text from mm -hmm. what the original author meant, then why would you call that beautiful or good? Uh, so I would say that what you're doing is you are finding a spiritual dimension to Scripture where even if, let's say, the author doesn't intend for you to see a certain connection, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, I'll give you an example, right? Um, there have been instances where I have sat in a room with like poets or authors, and uh, they, they ask somebody to interpret the text that they wrote. And the person comes to an interpretation that's actually like really beautiful and remarkable about like the poem or narrative they wrote. Mm -hmm. But then the author says, well, uh, that's beautiful. That's wonderful. But that's not what I meant, right? But like the, the author is actually kind of impressed and moved that this person so loves the text and so appreciates it that they saw like a whole nother way of interpreting mm -hmm. it and looking at yeah. it. That isn't, let's say, doing violence, <laughs> like not actually like in some radical way, you know, contradicting the author's intention, right? But maybe like just a, a kind of colorful, interesting way of looking at it differently, uh, right? And that way then you can actually honor the author if you find like a different interpretation that doesn't radically dishonor the aims of the author. Hmm. And so, for example, like, let's say Matthew, uh, let's say the gospel writers listen to that kind of new Eve interpretation with Mary Magdalene. They might say, yeah, we weren't thinking about that, but they might say, but like the fact that that helps you love Jesus more and it kind of speaks to you on a level spiritually, you know, maybe that's something, there's something there. Maybe the scriptures, maybe the Holy Spirit is giving you another layer or another alternate mm. interpretation that is good for your soul, right? To mm. see, you know, maybe like, you know, you, you see, if you see Mary Magdalene as like this Eve figure, um, you could think about how Mary Magdalene at that moment represents all of humanity weeping for the resurrection. And maybe that inspires you further with greater confidence and hope that the resurrection will come. Mm. And so, I mean, there, I mean, there are ways in which this can be done beautifully and respectfully. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's very heartwarming. The, uh, Tim Mackey, he talks a lot about how 
specifically like the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, etc. I guess there was some type of Jewish way of writing where they're purposely vague that or or yeah. maybe maybe they're not purposely vague, but they're writing about something, but they want you to read it in all kinds of different angles and ways and um, just to see how it could benefit your life. Like, you know, maybe the mm -hmm. the the maybe an intention was to describe how, you know, it was historical in some way, but that that wasn't the main focus of why they were writing. Like they were writing for some spiritual significance or, you know, theological point. Um, but the mm -hmm. it was to benefit you know the the reader's eyes in some way um so that yeah that's that's really an interesting way to look at it um but yeah i know anyways uh, that's that's all i got for you today it's uh, been a pleasure talking to you um everybody go check out swan's channel awesome stuff and if uh, you want to look into catholicism that's definitely a great place to look um any any other last thoughts or plans for the channel that you want people to know about Oh, well, let me just say thank you, Zach, for hosting me. You've been very kind, and I, I've enjoyed your content. And so thank cool. you. And uh, I know that you have a lot of exciting stuff going on in your life, and so I won't take away from your thunder. Uh, but yeah, definitely for this guy. Wait, let me see right here. Which, which way is it? Yeah, like and subscribe to this guy's channel. <laughs> Appreciate it. Um, but but seriously, no, um, like what are your plans for the channel, on for your channel? What are your topics that you're going to be talking about in the future? Yeah, I mean, so for intellectual Catholicism, I have um, I've done some interviews with some guests who have talked about like the historical Jesus versus the Christ of faith, and how do we bridge that gap? Uh, should we just totally reject the historical critical method? I had uh, one scholar come in and talk about that. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to also have conversations with like people like uh, Michael Lacona on gospel differences. Uh, so I'm I'm kind of you know going into the area of scripture studies because that's what I'm interested in right now. And I'm trying to hit a wide array of just various topics. So that's just a little foretaste of what's to come. Sweet. Awesome. I'm excited to, to, to watch. But yeah, anyways, thanks for coming on. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Mm -hmm.